You are listening to the DJI podcast, a space to listen our online events, conversations, and seminars, hosted by the Transitional Justice Institute. Good evening, everyone, and to those of you joining us on Zoom, good morning or good night or good afternoon, wherever you are. Well, hello and welcome to our hybrid event, Contemporary Challenges to Women, Peace and Security hosted by the Gender, Justice and Security Hub and Ulster University and Queen's University. My name is Rory O'Connell. I am Professor of Human Rights and Constitutional Law at Ulster University and Hub co-investigator. I am delighted to be chairing this event this evening and very happy to be welcoming Monica McWilliams, Muzat Kadim and Christine Chinkin to Ulster University. Before I introduce our speakers, I have a few announcements. This public lecture is part of the GCRF Gender, Justice and Security Hub Convention. The Hub is a multi-partner research network working with local and global civil society practitioners, governments and international organizations to advance gender justice and inclusive peace. To find out more about the Hub, please check out the webpage www.thegenderhub.com. For those Twitter users in the audience, you can follow us on at the Gender Hub. This hybrid event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Those of, us, those of you joining us online, if you would mind just typing hello in the chat box to let us know that you can hear us. Uh, that would be very welcome. The panel discussion with audience tonight will last 90 minutes. And this session is designed to be a conversation between the panelists and the chair uh, for a duration of 45 minutes. We want to combine the opportunity for each speaker to convey their initial thoughts on the theme of the session with a lively exchange with the chair. After our panel discussion, we will have 40 minutes for questions and answers with the audience. If you're joining us online, when we come to the Q&A portion of the event to submit your questions, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will pose as many as possible. Uh, please, if you're comfortable, let us know your name and affiliation. So now let me introduce our speakers. Uh, Professor Christine Chinken is the former director of the LSE Center for Women, Peace and Security, a global law professor at the University of Michigan and a member of the Bar of England and Wales and Matrix Chambers. She was previously professor of international law at LSE. She has authored many articles on international law and human rights law, particularly women's human rights. She is co-author of The Boundaries of International Law Feminist Analysis with Hilary Charlesworth. The Making of International Law with Alan Boyle and of International Law and New Wars uh, with Mary Keldor. And hot off the presses, I believe. Last week, I think. <laughs> yeah. We have Christine Chinken, Women, Peace and Security in International Law. So we're right up to the moment. <laughs> professor Monica McWilliams is Emeritus Professor at Ulster University's Transitional Justice Institute and was the Chief Commissioner of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, where she was responsible for delivering the advice on a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Professor McWilliams was elected to a seat at the multi-party peace negotiations, which led to the Belfast, our Good Friday Agreement in 1998, 
and was also the co-founder of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition political party. Muzrat Kadim is international. And since I gave a mention to Christine's book, I also have to mention <laughs> also oh, sure. <laughs> Monica <laughs> McWilliams. Uh, stand up, speak out. Uh, if you want to know what really happened in Northern Ireland in the 1990s and later. Uh, and for those in the audience, I believe it's possible to pick up a copy uh, here this evening. Musrat Kadim is internationally known expert on de-radicalization, preventing violent extremism or PVE. Her research focuses on localizing the WPS agenda, preventing violent extremism and de-radicalization reintegration and rehabilitation of de-radicalized youth and women, inclusive peace education, role of religion and culture in conflict resolution and peace building. From the platform of Paiman, she initiated a unique model of preventing violent extremism through community peace structure, which has received international recognition and is being replicated in many countries. Mizrat is an experienced trainer, researcher and analyst and has published two books. I'm sorry, we don't have them here this evening. Written many articles, produced documentaries on women leadership, women political participation, and preventing violent extremism. So having introduced our really world leading uh, experts and practitioners this evening, the format is I have some questions for the speakers. Uh, and as I say, when we've had our discussion for about 45 minutes, uh, we will then turn to the audience uh, to hear your questions. Uh, but I'm going to start by asking Christine uh, just to set the scene by telling us a bit about the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Okay, thank you, Rory. And thank you for the introduction. And can I just step out for just a moment to say, as PI of the gender justice, gender justice and security, I can't even remember it, um, hub. I would like to thank you and all your Northern Ireland colleagues very much for all the organization, all the work you've done this week to help make the convention such a success. And uh, so not just tonight's lecture, but the entire week and looking at many of your other Northern Irish colleagues. It's just been fantastic and the hospitality and so on as well. So I'd just like to say that first. Okay, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. I'm sure many people here know all about it, but in case there are some that don't. Um, it's usually dated from Security Council Resolution 1325, which was adopted in the year 2000. That's the Security Council's Women, Peace and Security Agenda. I always emphasize as well that that builds on decades and decades of women's activism, women's civil society, working on the issues that then came into that agenda in 2000. But sticking with the Security Council, um, Resolution 1325 was followed by nine other WPS resolutions leading up to 2019 when the most recent resolution was adopted. Um, the WPS agenda basically starts from the understanding that conflict is gendered, that conflict, like all other social institutions, impacts differently on people who are targeted or in other circumstances are influenced by their gender. So the whole basis is that conflict has this gendered basis. And the 
traditionally law policy decision making around conflict has essentially only seen men as actors um, both as perpetrators as victims as decision makers as policy makers etc around conflict mm -hmm. so the women peace and security agenda is about bringing in particular it's called women bringing women into decision making and law and policy making around conflict um, the 10 resolutions are extraordinarily detailed. There's a lot of repetition in them as well, not surprising as they are UN resolutions. Um, but essentially, they, they are now often conceptualized as having four main pillars. So the four main pillars are enhancing women's participation, women's participation in the decision making around conflict, around management of conflict and particularly around conflict resolution and the aftermath of conflict. So a whole sort of basis around participation, but not just around conflict resolution and management, but also about enhancing women's participation in the various bodies within particularly the United Nations institutions. So UN special envoys, for example, peacekeeping operations in a whole range of activities within the UN basis. The second um, pillar is prevention, and this is primarily about prevention of sexual violence in armed conflict. And there's a, a very heavy emphasis throughout the resolutions on sexual violence in armed conflict and the need to prevent. And then the third pillar, protect against sexual violence, sexual violence and gender based violence in armed conflict. But then also attached to prevention, which very often gets omitted, and certainly the Security Council tends to forget about it, is prevention of armed conflict itself. And to say that tends to get uh, minimized, but it is, I think, an extremely important part of it. The fourth pillar is relief and recovery. So immediate humanitarian relief during and in the aftermath of conflict, and then post-conflict recovery, reconstruction, peace building and so on. So those are the four main pillars around women, peace and security. Um, essentially, it's about the Security Council bringing women's experiences into their primary responsibility under the UN Charter for the maintenance of international peace and security. So it's bringing it into that security agenda. Two final points. Um, later resolutions have also maybe three final points, um, have also emphasised the importance of women's empowerment and women's leadership. Um, I think particularly the earlier resolutions tended rather to present women constantly as victims, and particularly victims of sexual and gender-based violence. The participation pillar does move away from that, obviously, and does emphasise women's agency, but there's also women's empowerment, women's leadership. Um, the latest resolutions in 2019 also emphasize um, the importance of taking a survivor-oriented uh, approach to all aspects of the agenda, survivor-centered. Um, and so that has now become extremely important. And the third, which the Security Council downplays, remembers upon occasion, is the importance of engaging with civil society at different times. I would summarize women, peace and security as ideally a women's peace and a women's human rights agenda. I think the Security Council sees it far more as a security agenda. 
Thank you, Christine, for giving us a comprehensive introduction to the WPS agenda. Um, Mazrat or Monica, is there anything you'd like to add just to explain how you conceive of the WPS agenda? Well, probably good to start off from where I came from, where there was no UN 1325 <laughs> um, in back when we got organized here at the time of the ceasefires. And it came two years after the peace negotiations, so our Good Friday Agreement was 1998. And I, the first point I'd make is that changing systems and changing structures matter. I've spent my life probably doing capacity building workshops, and I think we've done enough of those. Um, it's time for the systems to change. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case here. And the focus here was on getting the, those parties affiliated to the armed groups to the table along with the old status quo parties. Um, and that would have meant that there would be no women at the table. Indeed, we wrote to all of the others asking where they're going to put them, but we put the pressure on to have that system amended. And it was, and we'd only six weeks in order to get organized. And I say that because that was all before UN 1325. Mm -hmm. And I was very pleased to hear as a result of that outcome and I think the, representing the coalition, when I signed the agreement, I was one of only 3% in the world of, as a woman who had signed an agreement. I have to say, and you'll probably agree, it hasn't increased that much. No, very, very little. A quarter of a century. And so here we were able to do it without the UN 1325. So that speaks to how successful has UN 1325 been. Nonetheless, throughout this, I hope we will be able to say it is really important to have it because it does raise awareness. It allows people like me to challenge others when I go to Colombia or Syria or the Middle East or wherever to say, why is that a mammal, an old male panel? Actually, Al Jazeera this morning, I was shocked that the only three individuals speaking on the world news about the elections in Northern Ireland were all men. Uh, why am I shocked? Why are you not surprised? Um, yeah. And so I kind of think, who is blogging this? You know, what is it that the whoever the lazy person in Al Jazeera, and I like Al Jazeera because they have the money to do good investigative work, uh, whereas BBC bores the bum off me these <laughs> days. Um, never mind, don't get me started on CNN and all the American stations. But there is a role there as well in terms of who is blocking this and no doubt Rory that will come up later but I am concerned that even where we um, have raised the issue of conflict related sexual violence it is still not being part of the negotiations mm -hmm. and I'm working with a group now that was set up by the MDI and my good friend Gina Tory, who was a UN mediator and expert gender expert in Central Africa who insisted that when you have a cessation of conflict or a ceasefire or a cessation of hostilities, you have to ask about the cessation of rape and the cessation of sexual assault as part of a ceasefire. Otherwise, what does the ceasefire mean? Does it just mean bombs and bullets as we knew them here? And so where I'm really concerned now also is that women are still being told, the women I'm working with, uh, and the Syrian negotiation, high negotiation, Council World will be next week in Geneva, are being told after all these years, stick to the humanitarian issues. Mm -hmm. That's what yeah. you women are good yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah. And leave the politics to us men. 
Now, turn on the TV and watch the Ukrainians and Russians negotiating a humanitarian <clears throat> corridor. Who knows about humanitarian issues? Mm. Correct. But who's not at that table? Yeah. So a quarter of a century later, I'm simply throwing it out there. We've had UN 1325. I'm glad the Security Council raised it. I'm glad that we talk about women, peace and security and youth, peace and security these days. But I have to ask, is the progress really precarious 25 years later? More than 25 years. Women were asking for this back in turn of the turn of the last century. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah decades. Sorry, that's right. No, that's fine. I'll just add to it because, you know, we were just discussing while coming here. Uh, in 2017, we just said, like, we were so hopeful yeah. because 1325 was there and we were expecting a lot from the International Community Security Council and the General Assembly itself and the UN entities that definitely 1325 is there, a lot is coming our way and women will be having the say at different levels. And after, like, you know, the passage of the five years, I think with every passing day, 1325 or I would say WPS agenda has either failed us or we have failed WPS because it did not come up to the expectations of the women who were, who I call them the peace practitioners, the women who are on the ground, the women who are actually uh, dealing with the conflict on daily basis and trying to resolve it. 1325, I think like, you know, yes, it's too good on paper mm -hmm. and the, and the, all the resolutions and I'm not like, I'm a critic of 1325 in another way and I'm going to come to it later on. But right now I said five years ago, we were still expecting something good. And I think when we were having the, 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 the you know, I think 2020, we were just celebrating the uh, 20 years of 1325. I was asking people, what are we celebrating? Mm -hmm. Where are we actually standing now? Because we really salute the struggle of those women who brought 1325, coined this word 1325, like, you know, in the Security Council. But then what's next? Are we doing anything really for the next generation to take, like, you know, a pride in us that, yes, these women literally helped in bringing us to the table of negotiations they brought us like, you know, in the frameworks of reconstruction and rehabilitation and reintegration. We are still missing from those important forums. Yeah. Thank you, Masrat. And you mentioned that the celebration of Resolution 1325 queried whether the WPS agenda has failed us or have we failed the WPS agenda, which is a very striking way of putting it. I'd just like to put that to our other speakers. Uh, how do you react to that uh, way of thinking about the WPS agenda today? Well, I mean, I'm very glad because I've actually gone to the Security Council and sat in at the UN watching the debates. And as a former politician in our local assembly, I always thought it was really useful um, in raising awareness when you brought an issue to the table that wasn't there before because a piece of legislation was coming up or because a res resolution was coming up and it increased awareness amongst people who hadn't a clue about it. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, Christine is somebody who drafted the Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, the advice on it. I have to tell you, I was shocked at the lack of awareness amongst our politicians, particularly in your side, mm -hmm. on international human rights standards. And I'll say it publicly, 
it could hardly spell international human rights and not even understand what I was trying to advise on. And when I said the mandate from the Good Friday Agreement came to us in the Commission that we were required to attend to the international human rights standards, did anybody in Northern Ireland remind the individuals who were opposed to the Bill of Rights advice that that's what we had done? And so I remain concerned that coming out of conflict as we've done and into a transition, there's still too much emphasis on this notion that you have to have consensus by everybody in order to get something done. And you know that is the case at the UN Security Council, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which I'm hoping now is going to change because of the recent pressure in Ireland as a seat from the Security Council and back the change of Russia and China constantly making a veto. But um, for all of that, I still think it is really important. My awareness uh, was increased. I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing probably now internationally if governments weren't supporting it. There probably wouldn't have been a civil society advisory group at the Syrian negotiations for women in Geneva or a women's advisory group if there hadn't been a 1325. And I could rattle off a lot of other examples, but because we've got, haven't got much time, those are some of the examples, um, but are they world shattering? And in fact, I have to say those two groups have now been dropped, yes. um, even though um, they made great advances and got women from both sides to begin such a shock and conflict of Syria mm. and to actually talk to each other when uh, by proxy the, the men on the male committees as they were um, were refusing as they did yeah. here uh, to speak to their opponents. Yes. But I'm going back to Masharat, you know, have we failed at 1325 or has 13, how did you put it? Or has 1325 failed us? I mean, I think the Security Council has failed us. I mean, yes, okay, it's raised awareness there, but they haven't lived up in any way at all to the expectations that they put in their own resolutions. Mm. So that, yes, okay, they created the civil society group, um, great pressure against it, of course, from Russia in particular, mm. um, but also from China. But the Security Council certainly does not put human rights to the forefront. And you say whether the politicians here yet know human rights. Um, the Geneva-New York split, you know, in the UN is, mm. I think, um, crucial. The Security Council doesn't put peace to the front either. It puts militarization, it puts militarism, mm -hmm. it puts geopolitics, great power issues to the forefront over and over again. And you know, even, I mean, there's a big debate about, you know, what is the legal weight of 1325 and the other resolutions. They could make it far more effective by ensuring every time there's a country specific resolution under chapter seven, which is binding upon member states, they incorporated WPS into it. They could make that part and parcel of every single resolution, and they don't. No, I agree. They just completely ignore it. And when they fail to um, increase participation, for example, or you know, countries come back, the secretary general comes with his annual report on all the areas within the Security Council mandate. The Security Council doesn't say to the to the countries a question, why haven't we put women there? Mm -hmm. They just ignore it. They just completely forget it. Then they'll have another jamboree when they have the next October debate, open debate on women, peace and security. Sorry, I'm getting That's angry. Right. <laughs> Actually, you know, I have like um, a serious reservation about the participation, prevention, protection, the two R's aspect, the pillars. Pillars. Yeah. 
because everybody confuses, you know, participation or just like, you know, fair participation. You are not supposed to be sitting around the re, like, you know, the peace negotiations. It's not there. When it comes to prevention, I'm sorry, I'm putting this word like, you know, uh, um, they, it's always their concern about sexual-based violence. They're concerned about the gender-based violence. The prevention uh, is only like, you know, limited to that. So when we were actually dealing with 1325 in our context, can I just say that? Mm -hmm. Uh, because in my country, Pakistan, we don't have national action plan on 1325. And it was a very sensitive, like, you know, I would say, uh, resolution to, to, to be discussed in public uh, for certain reasons. Uh, because they thought that we, when we talk about 1325, it means we are talking about the conflict in the country and inviting, like, you know, international and intervention, uh, interference in, in Pakistan. And that's why we, we don't have any conflict. It's a law and order situation. So please don't talk about 1325. So this was the sensitivity. But thanks goodness, like, you know, the, the, thing, the things have changed and now we can discuss it. But what we did, we localized 1325. The pillars remain the same. Protection, part participation, pro protection, prevention, and of course the two R's. But we literally use the word participation as it means participation of women in the decision making at every level, whether that's like you know, related to bringing in uh, um, the like you know, talking about the, the conflict, addressing it, resolving it, mediating it. And then, of course, when it comes to the reconstruction and rehabilitation, we spoke to the local government and we just said women have to be there. And I'll just give you the example of the COVID. We were there as first respondent to COVID. And we made sure that in our DRR, that is like, you know, in our, uh, the, the District Disaster Management Authority, they incorporate what women have been witnessing, what women have been seeing as a solution to COVID, and it was incorporated. So localizing means that you are actually, you know, not using the same uh, normative framework uh, of, the, of the UN, uh, but of course, trying to adopt it to your situation and to your context. And that's why we actually drew a compatibility between women, peace and security, and of course, our local culture and, the, and worked within the religion, uh, religious context as well. And that was, that became more acceptable. This is how you, if you really want the success of 1325, you really need to be working on the localizing uh, of 1325. Only then I think we could see something. I see something about this issue of participation and representation, because I've been looking at our own elections. If you've been here this week, that's probably all you've heard is how we're talking about our own elections. Now, in many ways, I was really cheered because as I drove around and down the road in Belfast where I live, women were staring down at me from every lamppost. Um, having said that, I have also had to deal with some shocking stuff and misogynist stuff that mm -hmm. was going on as it happened to me, and it's in the book, probably one of the reasons why the book's selling well, because everybody wants to read those stories. <laughs> um, but all these years, and I will say 25 years later, a young woman who I know very well, um, who stood and succeeded in getting an election, had pornographic pictures of her that weren't her yeah. cut out on media in a sex mm -hmm. act. Yeah. But what was more shocking was that it wasn't just spread. Mm -hmm. It was, she walked into shops and pubs and everybody stopped talking. Yeah. And the third thing was 2,000 
men responded to her on Instagram and Facebook asking her, oh, are you ready to come out with me? Um, but anyway, those are examples of, and it happened to me, of how they attack your reputation, your self-esteem. Um, and so that's also something that needs to be taken mm, on board. Yeah. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I'm delighted, absolutely, and if we are celebrating anything, it's the fact that 35% of women are now returned to the assembly mm -hmm. when there were only about 10%, just over 10% of us. I have this picture of the first assembly and I call it, where's Wally? Uh, because it's like a game trying to work out where the women are. And in those days, there was 108 of us. Um, and, but they're all white and they'd be the first to say, all the women mm. that we may be tackling the gender representation but have we tackled this issue as known as intersectionality in yeah. terms of ethnicity mm. and in terms of uh, disability they're all able-bodied as far as i know um and those are still the issues that you and what i find is when you raise the issues that we did here with policing and when we got a quota on policing 50 percent of all new groups to the police after the peace agreement and after the reforms to policing uh, were Catholic, and that was a quota because of the lack of representation, the under-representation of Catholics in the police. And we raised the issue, could we also have that police for gender, for women? And they were saying, oh, no, no, that wasn't a problem here. Um, and we expected that. But the good outcome of that is when you do have those quotas and affirmative action, um, it raises the others come in on the back of it. And so more women came in on the back of it. Sad to say that quota. I have to say is gone um, and gone too soon um, in my estimation because they argued that 30% was a critical mass and again back to this issue what is representation mm -hmm. and if you hit that bar then it goes and we haven't actually hit it so there are good things about it that I think if it's applied enforced and yeah. I spoke earlier about the importance of having the resolution and raising awareness what I've learned in my life is it's not good enough to have it on paper. And the biggest mistake I made, if I had to go back to the peace table now, I would absolutely turn every one of those aspirations into constitutional guarantees. We still don't have the Bill of Rights. We still don't have a civic forum, which the Women's Coalition put forward. We still don't, we still only have 7% of integrated education. You could throw up in the air the number of shared housing estates we've got. These were all in the chapter in reconciliation. And only today, did we de get a declaration in Westminster about what we're going to do with the legacy um, in terms of victims? Now, we have made some reparations for victims, but it was delayed, and justice delayed is often justice denied. But those were the things that women were also bring to the table in terms of reconstruction. And so the, it's important to have the process inclusive and representative, and it's not insufficiently representative, and I would say so here as much as anywhere. But it's important to look at that agenda. What's on is a comprehensive. Does it speak to the women in the country? Does it speak to the vulnerable people and the ethnic minorities of the country? Um, and that's why it's really important to have that table widened and also the agenda widened. But the third and final lesson I learned, as I said, was enforcement. And I've spent the last 20 years working on that. And I'm currently involved in the disbandment of paramilitaries, the commission. And so they set up these commissions to monitor those kinds of things, but they often don't monitor. Did the peace process actually speak to all the things that promised in the agreement? <clears throat> if I can 
ask uh, Nasrat or Christine if you want to pick up on any of those comments Monica's just made, maybe in particular about intersectionality. Uh, how does the WPS agenda address intersecting identities? Uh, Very poorly. <laughs> it's a, um, it, it is a women piece of security. And while we're at it, I mean, only two of the 10 resolutions even mention the fact that men and boys, of course, are also victims of sexual violence, gender-based violence. Um, people who are targeted for their gender, um, you know, who, who, dis, who do not conform, do not with the gender binary, are not mentioned at all. Um, there are a couple of mentions of disability. There is no um, reference at all to the importance of ethnicity, nationality, um, race, etc. So on the intersectionality front, um, the CEDAW committee, now the CEDAW committee, the Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is the human rights body, now they have adopted a general recommendation on women in armed conflict okay. uh, back in 2013. And they take the view that WPS has to be applied in accordance with the Convention, the Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And they have done a lot more work on intersectionality. So if one joined those dots, we could get more um, emphasis on intersectionality um, into the WPS agenda, but on its face, very, very poor. Masrat, anything to add on that? Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to add another uh, angle to it. I was just saying, I just said in the beginning that I have serious reservation about this prevention protection stuff. And we all talk about the prevention of sexual-based violence and gender-based violence. I believe that I think prevention has to be like, you know, more broadly used, prevention protection both. Because prevention to me is like, you know, preventing the conflict to happen. Prevention to me is actually uh, diffusing the tension. Uh, Preventing violent extremism to prevail or to be like you know, or to to be addressed before it takes the life of many people and it hits everybody in the society. So that for me is prevention. Protection. We always talk about protection from sexual based violence, but it's not only you know which is which is visible. Okay, fine. There is sexual based violence, but there are different kinds of like you know violences that take place in the society which are invisible which are which we don't even like you know mention in this document but which happens during the conflict after the conflict and before the conflict and we really need to be protecting the people who could be exposed to such sort of like uh, violences before like you know it takes their life or it hits them or it like you know like or they are victimized so protection can be taken in that way also uh, the fourth one that I uh, just said that is when it comes to two hours, somehow we forget that all women like, you know, should be there in the humanitarian group and they could be just like, you know, providing the humanitarian assistance. And you gave the example of the Syrian women. We have the friends like, you know, who are there in the Syrian, uh, in the, 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 the advisory group. And they were telling us that the men would just tell us you don't know actually what the conflict looks like you know how it is going on how can you give us the instructions or the advice to like you know resolve this conflict so 
that sort of attitude towards women's participation, even when they are there as observers or they are there like, you know, to, to, to say something about their own conflict, they are not allowed. So that is one thing because they are the Syrian women, they know the conflict. The other thing which is like, you know, very serious for us that we always feel that it is my conflict. It is the conflict going on in Afghanistan. That's the conflict going on like, you know, in, in Sri Lanka. And I am bringing this mediator, this international expert from the West, from outside the region, outside my region, who doesn't know the ABC of my culture, the ABC of like, you know, what the conflict is and what are its root causes, What's the history of, of, of this region when it comes to those sort of conflict handling? And what are the ways that that, that can be addressed? Yeah, we've got so, one of them here too. So, He's called Boris Johnson. Yes. <laughs> Go straight to his brain so, thinking he could do so anything. Yeah. You know, we should not be taking WPS as only, you know, the four pillars. We should go beyond it and we should talk, we, we should be talking about who matters when it comes to WPS and who should be actually handling it and how it should be handled. It should not be like, you know, imported from the outside and like, you know, given us, uh, 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 the solution should be actually, you know, tailored to their understanding, like, you know, not to, the, to our situation. So I think this is what my, like, you know, grievance is from yeah. the international uh, community. And this is what we raise, we always raise that the we it has to be taken like you know as regional con and contextual because when it comes to talking to the talibans we have been talking to the talibans i've been negotiating with the talibans of course like you know my friends in afghanistan have been directly talking to them because like i said we in the conflict ridden and conflict affected areas we actually i think are handling our situations on daily basis, whether it's resolving the conflict, mediating the conflict, talking to the warlords and talking to all those extremist groups, we know the art, we know the skill. So I think it has to be left to us, but at least we should be recognized that yes, you exist. As a peace practitioner, you exist because you have been re resolving it for the last 30 years in your own ways. And that's why it did not hit somebody else and it, you, you try to prevent it there and then. Yeah. So I think that yeah. really, we need that recognition. Yeah. As mediators, we need that recognition. As peace builders, we need uh, the, that recognition that we are the ones, when it comes to resolving the conflict, we can do it better than any international expert. It turns the whole concept Absolutely. of outsider on its head. Yeah. I was reading your foreword today to Fanula, our colleague Fanula Nahilan, and and um, that edited volume, oh, the, yeah. the toolkit, and the, the Oxford University Press. And in the foreword, you said one of the things that you noticed most from the chapters was the influence of outsiders on the inside process. Mm -hmm. And what you've just said turns that on its head, yeah. which is that outsiders are flown in yeah. when insiders actually understand the context. Um, but I did feel like an outsider. I was made to feel like an outsider um, and often felt that I was usurping. You know, we were called every name under the sun for being at the table. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes that's what you need is those outsiders to think out of the box, to think differently. Because my concern is that 
people always after a conflict want to go back to what they knew best to nostalgia. I shouldn't say that here, um, to the old nostalgic system that worked. Um, and it didn't, and it needed to be completely transformed. Um, and your attitude, your point there about attitudes. I mean, here we spent all two years of my time at the negotiating table was spent on decommissioning of arms of weapons mm -hmm. and for five years after it. And I used to put up my arm and say, not all arms are imported. These arms, as the women from Women's Aid here will know, did as much harm as some of the mm -hmm. weapons. But could we get a way of getting that into their mindset or the violence of the tongue that led to the violence of the gun? Yeah. Could we get that into the mindset? Um, and I think those are sometimes the risk takers because we weren't that interested in getting reelected or elected. It was by sheer miracle that we ended up, two of us in the next assembly, the first assembly. And I think we took risks and often you take, you need those kind of risk takers, especially those who are, understand what it's like if this conflict breaks down, mm. who's going to pay the price? It's the people like Marion in Ardoy, not the Ardoy, which she just was given off by Simon Kovnick talking about the Ardoy when it should have been Ardoy. But you know, Marion, that's what it's like to be at the front line and what it was like during the Holy Cross crisis. And the really important thing of having those on the front line. Mm. And women are often at the front line. Now, I just also want to say something about gender champions. I've got to the stage where in my life where I want the men to be the gender champions and to be the people pushing and advocating for women, peace and security, as I have found. But they're still not a critical mass. And I'm still being told in too many arenas, and including even the one in disbanded paramilitaries, what has women got to do with this? Yeah, yeah. That's what we hear. And day. I need the men in those conversations not to turn and look at me, mm -hmm. um, but they need to be the ones to say, well, have you looked at it from this angle? Mm -hmm. And I find that that's where the resolution has not seeped in. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I was just going to pick up on your prevention aspect as well. I mean, prevention is about looking at root causes. I think you just said root causes. And prevention is not, it can't be just at that sort of last minute. There's early warning type yeah, prevention, fair enough. But then there's also looking at the structural issues that we were all talking about yeah. earlier today. Yeah. So the structural patriarchy, power, yeah. you know, all of these absolute um, underlying, typical, yeah. yeah, that lead to contribute to and perpetuate conflict. And we've, somehow or another, I don't know the answers here, I think you two know far more, we've got to make whatever it is more than the band-aid on the particular issue and get to what are those structural aspects that mm. keep conflict and keep violence and so make the invisible violence that you were talking about as well. That's about the structural yeah. um, inequalities and the inequalities on race, gender, everything ethnicity yeah. sexuality yeah i'm really looking forward to this discussion from those because it's you're international and sitting where we are in northern ireland you probably need to know a couple of things un 1325 doesn't apply here because every, UK, every <laughs> UK government doesn't recognize northern yeah. ireland 
um, under the Geneva Convention as a war having happened. Yeah. And so we're relying on the Irish government to extend its mm -hmm. national action plan across, okay. include us across the border, hands across the border. So that's the craziness yeah. of, of that piece. But I'm also looking forward to hearing how it applies in other countries, um, because I don't think in the global north it has applied that much compared to the global south, or even maybe perhaps to where Europe coming from. Um, but I'm amazed when I go to Uganda and mm. to DRC and other countries, how much of a focus mm. they are on the structural issues, yes. on the poverty on the social and economic rights yeah um and i come back every time thinking how did that their culture and their context figure out that those are the structural causes okay. you come back here and they talk about reforms to the criminal justice system yeah. yeah to policing to militarism to demilitarism to the ddr issues mm -hmm. demobilization mm -hmm. uh, all of which are important in terms of security well we talk about safety as well as security but if you think of security and we did a study, as you may remember, when Paddy Hilliard and all of us were involved in Margaret in the transitional justice and at the University of Ulster, um, looking at that term security and saying, why have we never talked in the West about social and economic security? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we constantly talk about political security or having our identity secured as we are now talking in terms of the protocol and Brexit. But, you know, the impact even of that is on our social and economic livelihoods. Um, and, you know, I went marching for civil rights in the 60s, late 60s. God, I'm really dating myself here. Um, I was 15, I have to add. Um, and back then it was the issues of housing and unemployment. Yeah. Yeah. And we raised those issues as being the, sore, the very sore and harmful causes of conflict. They weren't dealt with. Instead, we had a lot of repression as a result of those protests. But again, I like the Westminster speech today saying you cannot protest if you do this, this and this. If you upset anybody. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. And I just think, you know, there we go again. Absolutely. There's the notion of security. Yeah. When in fact, that whole speech should have been on about the cost of living yeah. and how people are really suffering at the minute. And that is security. Economic security. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think some of you folk will understand that a whole lot more and have raised it a whole lot more at the international level. And good on you, because every time you do, it helps us. Well, Monica sort of invited our audience in. Um, I don't know, do either of you want to make a last few words before we go to the audience? Can I just say one thing which sort of links, I think what Monica and Nostra was saying, because you were saying the importance of localizing. And you were saying that, you know, the um, countries in the north don't recognise WPS, etc. I mean, as far as I can see, and this is looking particularly at the UK National Action Plan and the United States WPS strategy, their idea of WPS is we tell them in the south what to do. Yes. And that is absolutely That's contrary to both yeah. what you're saying and that. And we cannot, uh, it, it's still putting on this... Um, I don't know, well, imperialism, absolutely, all of that. And um, so, yeah, so the UK National Action Plan doesn't look at its own yeah, situation at all. 
but it yeah. says an awful lot about what it's going to do mm. elsewhere. The United States praises itself because it's the only country in the world that's got a WPS yes, statute. Yes. What it's all about is exactly about doing something outside. It, in the interests of the US. Mm. That is repeated over and over again in, the, in their yes, strategy. Imperialism of WPS. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> well, it, maybe at this stage, uh, unless you do have another word that maybe it's time to go to our audience and hear any questions or observations um please do project speak out uh, we do have a mic over in that corner of the room if anyone does want to make their way over to it but otherwise the acoustics are quite good here so if you just project um i have one here yourself and then yes uh, way there back so we'll start with you Marie. sure yeah um first thanks this is such a lovely rich critical exciting <laughs> discussion and i'm i'm relieved to be in a wps panel where there is such a, a real and also kind of strong critical approach to these um topics sorry i'm marie berry from the university of denver in the United States. Um, Sorry. <laughs> yes, right. One of the countries that signed our national action plan under Donald Trump, right? So, um, you know, which creates a, a real sense of how much weight it had. I guess I want to ask earlier on in the panel, um, you know, we were talking about the really the limits of WPS um, uh, in terms of the way in which the Security Council has taken it seriously. And I also just, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at the news coming out of Ukraine and recognizing um, that the Security Council itself and, you know, the entire architecture of all mm, of these international yeah. institutions that we designed to prevent conflict in the first place mm. are just completely broken, failing. Broken. Broken, yeah. right? So no kidding, WPS is not working. No kidding, it's not working. Like, this, this doesn't surprise me in the least. And what I worry about is that so much of the smart feminist minds and so much of the smart feminist organizing and international politics circles has focused so, so kind of laser focused on WPS for the, for the past 20 years that I wonder if it's lost some of the original radical transformative sort of power <laughs> that was rooted in women's grassroots mm. feminist advocacy. Because, you know, we haven't even talked about whether WPS is a feminist agenda. Right, I I would argue that so much of the of the advocacy around WPS that we've seen in tr in terms of getting more women into the military or things like that undermine broader feminist goals of actually eradicating militarism as a goal of like our, our of our work to actually build a world that is less violent. Mm. So I'm curious, like what your what the panelists think about. Mm where the where this conversation needs to go and urgently given the the both the importance of the framework of wps mm. but also as all human rights frameworks they are both tools and instruments of power as well as sites for deepening advocacy so where do we where do we take that deepening of advocacy around these issues and and reconnect it to the grassroots right reconnect it to the communities that have been on the receiving end most profoundly of violence, not only violence out of the barrel of a gun, but violence from economic insecurity, from the brutalities of capitalism and inequality that we're experiencing in so many places. And I'm just curious like, to, to know where, where you all think we should go. Who would like to take that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think you've answered your own question. Mm -hmm. It's the social movements. <laughs> It's the social yeah. movements in my life that created all the change from civil rights, cut my teeth in the civil rights movement. My first 
activism was on the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Mm. And we were successful back then, look at us now, and the Greenpeace movement, yeah. um, then the human rights movement. And as you said, join up the, the dots. Um, and so I, I do think that we should never give up on social movements making a change, nor should we give up the idea that small incremental changes don't lead eventually to the change we want to and aspire to. I have seen that in my lifetime. I've worked with Women's Aid, um, who I love this term now, experts by experience. When I set out to do the work on domestic violence, I was told, okay, you need to talk to the professionals. Um, and the political policymakers. And I said, no, I need to talk to the experts by experience, um, which is the, frame, the term we've coined now. And recently, one of my happiest days before the assembly collapsed, as we moved into the elections, somebody described it as, as McDonald's handing out nuggets before they closed their door at the midnight, uh, extra chicken nuggets. And if you remember that week, we had legislation on stocking, we had legislation on sex trafficking. We had legislation on coercive control and domestic violence, things I'd been working on for donkeys. And suddenly they all came to pass. And they all came from the grassroots. They came from civil society, putting the pressure on the policymakers and the politicians. Um, and it's joining those dots. So I'm quite hardened now. And I see the head of the civil service, who's a woman. I describe her as a femi femocrat. It's somebody who would describe herself as a feminist who's become a bureaucrat. And we have quite a substantial number of femocrats inside the system um, and a sizable number of women and good men moving into politics and that social movement coming from outside. And when you get that working together, you really do see the change. And to me, Northern Ireland hasn't changed as fast as I'd like. I've had to have an awful lot of patience and an awful lot of persistence, but it does come. So although you get exasperated about the lack of uh, movement, you know, these changes, small as they may seem, um, do work. But you're right. The geopolitics really frustrates me. And Russia, obviously, NATO on the other side, um, and the emphasis on military solutions, um, really worrying. And the geopolitics of... Syria, as we saw, those pure Syrian women who I work with, what influence could they have when the negotiations were taking place in Moscow mm -hmm. between the Russians and Iran mm -hmm. and, and Syria? So, you know, there's where your major frustration still lies, is when the grassroots and peace building circles back in Syria or in Afghanistan or wherever have all these geopolitical negotiations going on beyond their, beyond their reach. <laughs> You add your one thing first. Actually, you know, I am a believer of social movement. But I, like, you know, you use the word advocacy. That has become such a, for me, like, you know, it, advocacy, we do advocacy all the time. Then I feel that why we should be advocating, like, you know, we are suffering, we are being affected, and we should be advocating to whom? It should be us who should be actually, you know, uh, designing everything that we want. So we should be the architect of our own destiny. We should take it in our hands. And instead of in, like, you know, advocating for us, okay, include us in this process. No, we should be actually enforcing ourselves. That should be, I call it like, you know, assertiveness that we have to show as, as women.
whether we are practitioners, we are defenders, or we are politicians, or we are fem, what did you call Democrats. It? Democrats. <laughs> that one thing. The other thing is, I think we talked about, uh, you mentioned the structure, uh, of course, the issues that are there. It's here. We have the structures here. We really need to change the thinking of the women first. And then we can talk about like, you know, changing the other structures. So that's, I think we really need to do now. There had been a lot of resolutions. There had been a lot of networks. There had been a lot of movements, but I, we still are looking that the miracle will happen and something is going to bring more women into the processes and into like, you know, this whole framework issues and stuff like that. Now we have to start doing it our, on our own. We have to start designing it ourselves. We don't, let's not wait. I don't think I've, I mean, I just agree with everything that two, both of you have said. Um, just perhaps a couple of thoughts. One is social movements are absolutely, I mean, again, just look at what's happening now. You mentioned CND, Black Lives Matter, Me Too. I mean, these have all had more impact yeah. in any way, far more than any Security Council. Sure. Um, resolution but I do still believe perhaps against my sort of own instincts that I think we need the law as well I, th I think the legal frameworks do provide even stronger tools um, than resolutions it's not either or it's no both yeah. yeah and I think that advocacy in the sense of being able to create the laws we want and structure and then use them I think that would be. We need to implement them. We yeah, and then you use them and, and implement them. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, I think those. Are, you see the implementation of the laws that exist. Absolutely. Uh, we don't need new law. But what yeah. we do need yeah. is using those, those exactly. laws yeah. and interpreting and applying the laws in the way we intended them to be interpreted and applied. Too often, laws get into the hands of others and then get mis uh, misapplied. And I did have another point, but I forgot. Uh, but my so, question would be, how do you deal with interpretation? Yeah. Mm. So you're all here in Northern Ireland and we have a peace agreement here. Now, my biggest question is how many different ways has that agreement been interpreted? Mm. It's a bit like women, peace and security. Yeah. And look where the kind of mess we're currently in. And we all know, of course, that laws are the, the process of negotiation, the lowest common denominator and worded deliberately used that they can be applied yeah. in multiple ways. Which I started by saying, yeah. if you go for the lowest common denominator on something like human rights in order to get a bill of rights, then you've lost the whole rationale yeah. for having that in a peace agreement in the first place. And just a reminder <laughs> to our guests online on Zoom, do type in your questions and we'll get to them after our next question from the audience. So we had a question from the back. Thank you. Um, my question was very much in the same vein as Maurice, so I'll just highlight uh, one point. Uh, my name is Evelyn, I'm based at the LSE and I also work for a conflict transformation NGO called Grapple Foundation um, uh, based in Berlin. And I was thinking along the same lines as Marie, and I want to just highlight one point and pose as a question. Do you see any sort of transformative potential using the WPS agenda in thinking about conflict and thinking about patriarchy and thinking about socioeconomic justice and all of these topics that you've brought up. Um, I think Monica, at some point you were talking about this issue of going back, sometimes there's a desire to go back after the conflict to reconstruct something. Like what are we trying to reconstruct and do you think that 
you know, given all the criticisms of the WPS agenda that you've all raised in the beginning, that there is something in there that, you know, we should be using to, mm. to try to transform conflict or do we really, like Marie was also saying, need to listen to other actors if we want to think in a more transformative way and get a little bit away from, you know, another resolution, another resolution. Mm. I think we have to work first with the one we've got. And when I said I'd go back, well, anybody would know retrospect's a great person to have at the table. And so I didn't have retrospect at the table when I sat. I was trying to look forward as much as you could. Um, but um, what I'm saying is I missed timetables. I forgot. The two things I learned when you're negotiating is get it on the agenda and then demand resources to be applied to implement it or enforce it, or a validation committee, yeah. a timetable and some targets. That's what I meant. It's very aspirational. And Women, Peace and Security is very aspirational. It does raise awareness because it makes us think, you know, why didn't I think of that? Nothing about us without us is for us. That came from the disability movement. And in many ways, it's one of that I kind of think all the time when I'm looking at these issues. So transformative is a really big word. I think in Rory's Institute, it's called transitional justice. And I think we're still in a very much a transitional period. Sometimes you're as many years at coming out of the conflict as the years you were in it. Um, and we're 30 something years out of a ceasefire. And we're still talking about ceasefire issues. Well, I am in terms of this notion of overseeing the measures to disband the existing paramilitary groups. Um, but, and so when I look at these, this issue, I try to think of it in transformative terms um, and around issues of masculinity and why aren't more women in our communities getting more resources? That has to do with budgeting and who's giving them the budgets because the women are very active here, really political here, and yet, a big box of the funding. And I'm supportive in many ways if it's going to be used productively and from changing people from what they call themselves community defenders to community menders. But how many do they often think that that's what women were doing? And why I have seen women going backwards. Talk about transformation. My worry is in terms of recovery and reconstruction, which is also pillars of UN resolution has meant that, sad to say, in Nicaragua, <clears throat> Vietnam, and I thought, I hope that doesn't happen here. Um, and so we're holding on and sustaining and maintaining whatever progress we made. So transformation is still very much a vision, and particular in terms of attitude change. Um, so I'm continuing to fight. And the last sentence of my book, I described myself as a, a long flight bird on this journey. Um, and so might be pushing up the daisies by the time I see real transformation um, and a critical mass of, of women in terms of being heard, being mainstreamed, being resourced to do the things that create sustainable peace. Again, I agree with everything there, but I, I sort of think going back to the agenda itself, I think we missed two transformative moments. I think 2000 itself, um, I mean, there was a huge transformative vision in civil society, in the social movement. And it was probably in many ways, a huge mistake going to the Security Council mm -hmm. because it then got harnessed into the Security Council framework, into the UN bureaucracy, everything that goes with that. 
So that was one moment. But I thought, think 2015, when we had the global study, and the global study, I think, does have a lot of transformation in it. Yeah. It, um, I mean, it's absolutely explicit, no to militarism and no to mm. militarization. It spells it out as the number one concern of women around the world. It talks about economic justice and not having the neoliberal economic uh, aspect, the need to work with the various bodies and try to ensure mind change mindset. It talks about climate change. It talks about the changing security situation. It even talks about um, COVID, uh, not COVID, because that wasn't known then, but it talks about the dangers of a health epidemic, you know, um, which then comes through. And if the Security Council had been brave enough at that point to take the global study and go with it, I think that could have been a transformative moment. And back to what you started by saying, you know, that there's some optimism at that point. But I mean, it is quite clear, isn't it, the point you began with, that the, I mean, we have a serious question now as to whether the UN itself is broken. And can it be saved? Can it in any way at all? And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we have at the moment. I still believe in it. I do. I think I we have to. to. I wondered you yeah. come in before I kind of, I don't want to be seen to be, you know, but I, I've done enough around the world to know that it's still necessary yeah. and look where it came from. It needs to get back there. Um, and uh, uh, unfortunately, it's the autocrats who hate the UN. Not unfortunately, it stands to sense that those demagogues hate the UN. I, I'm a great believer in collective countries coming together, being connected. And I am an internationalist. I think it was Bill Rolston once said, um, I'm an internationalist more than a nationalist. And that's where I believe in the United Nations. We have a lot of people who want to come in. Um, you have my eye first, so do you want to ask? Should we take several? Yeah, well, we, if we can take, uh, we can take three questions. Um, if you can keep them, yes, I. Uh, so Grace, and then Emily back, and then down in the front. Uh, thank you, Emily, and thank you, Christine, and Emily, for this Can't hear anything. I will shout. So I have been uh, studying with the military in Uganda, especially those who are employed outside the borders. And this is uh, part of the UN mandate for, to ensure that uh, these countries are at peace or security, because they use these words interchangeably. Uh, now that I listen to President, I think there is there should be a component for peace and follow through logically. Like how do we? Uh, uh, again, this goal of having peace instead of talking about security and following it through with militarization. So, soldiers in Uganda have been going to all over the place, to Iraq, to Somalia, they've been going to uh, West African countries, and uh, God forbid if they're called to, to Russia, they will go just because the UN is investing in militarization, it's giving in lots of resources to, to promote militarization. And yet we know now that this WPS needs to uh, be released so that we also focus on the peace aspect. Because I don't see, where is the peace in this WPS? When, I don't see it. I think now is the time to uh, work towards it uh, or to focus on the peace aspect. And for instance, then we change the discourse to perhaps less militarization, 
more funding to peaceful means of resolution and also women's movement and also actually opting for peaceful uh, means of uh, resolving conflict starting from the grassroots and not listening to the UN and whatever thank you so we'll take a second and third question before we let people answer my biggest problem with the refugee agenda is the denial of our collective failure. Is the what? Is the denial of our collective failure. Oh, yeah. And of Afghanistan. Yeah. The WTS agenda might not be relevant to the Taliban, but it is relevant to our country. Yeah, yeah, good point. The limitations of the resolution and its specific pillars right now is the prevention and the protection pillar. And it's relevant only to certain types of conflicts and contexts, being it problematic. We cannot wait for another resolution for another five or ten years to have another resolution so that the current context of Afghanistan shifts again. We need to protect the women of Afghanistan, and it should be within the WTS agenda. So my problem is really with the denial and not going back to this as quickly as possible. We should hold us already gone back to the resolution and ask ourselves questions what is missing what what is that we should critique and what is that we should be correcting rather than deconstructing and then imposition is a problem as well the lack of partnership is the biggest problem we have not been part partnering with the Afghan people for example in the Afghan context but similarly as a context the partnership with the women on the ground with the people on the ground very super, it has been very superficial. And another quick point about the southern the southern region, I agree with you sir, about letting the regions handle their issues, which they relate to more than somebody else who comes from outside. But the issue is also about the relevance of the region to the solution of the problem. And it depends on the self-interest of a country or a region as well. That needs to be taken into account too. So everything is political, everything is complex, nothing is just great. South <laughs> is not one homogeneous group of people. I mean, we have differences, we have different, different needs, different ways to live. Um, it's a political agenda. So it's, it's very political. When it's, as you said earlier, everything is nothing is apolitical for me, whether it's a humanitarian aspect of the conflict or um, or, or, or a process, whether that's the political dialogue, whether that's sitting on the table and negotiating peace. I think everything is political. We have been dealing with for decades now, um, and it should be recognized, like the role of the women in all these cases and everything that they do as part of whatever contributions they make in, in, a, in a process, in a context, is political. It should be recognized within the political yeah. framework. Thank you very much. Sorry, were you done? I'm done. Oh, yes, yes, thank you. Yes. And then you had a question as well before we go back. Just really a comment. Um, it was a comment to everyone with context back to the one of the islands. It's not a comment about the woman on the ground, actually, because women on the ground is not a big set. German troubles carried everybody, and everybody worked cross community. Um, dangerous times, you all work together, whatever. And then, when the peace process happened, a lot of those women were left behind and forgotten about. Mm -hmm. And there was like jobs for the boys, you know, 
people who were causing trouble got all the big jobs. A lot of people felt um, a bit disappointed in some of that. And now, even, even in the States, the community groups depend on funding and things like that. There's not really right that you should be dependent on funding to keep such good work going. Mm. Everybody, a lot of groups I know are protected groups at the moment. Yeah. And most groups have done marvelous work over the years, and especially with COVID, with the past few years. We could not have delivered ourselves on the ground with COVID and all the stuff that we actually did without the people on the ground delivering that service. It's just to try and recognise the work that people in the voluntary sector have done. And the voluntary sector is now becoming very professionalised with people coming in with the professional kind of view background and the women on the ground feel a bit ostracised, a bit left out, you know, just to keep those people, let them know they were valued. And, you know, a lot of them are paid workers. And volunteer for 50 years, so they're not paid. But just to be a bit of something, you know, when I say something, is it going to be carried to the top? I was just going to say that's just so and so talking, you know, <laughs> to respect your voice after all those years. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we have three uh, very interesting comments and questions there. Comments, mm -hmm. really, without yeah, questions. Yeah, no, to... I think, yeah. No, I th I... Apart from agreeing, yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't really agree with all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but and, and, well, just briefly, uh, just Marion, people do remember and will remember, and it will have to be sustained the work that women have done. <clears throat> I used to say we would have had a Bosnia here if we hadn't had women like yourself and others in this room <coughs> working across the interface when others couldn't do it. But <coughs> I wanted to take up that issue. And Afghanistan. I mean, we're just in despair. <clears throat> I mean, I used to laugh at the table and say, we've got the Taliban on the other side there. And not realizing just the extent to which I was talking about the dinosaurs, right? And they're everywhere. And as you say, the context is everything. Um, and so when I'm going back 10 years now, when I was working with women in Afghanistan, and we used to say, when the Jurgos were happening, and how many women are going to them. And what I found too was the women finally realized they had to start cooperating themselves and partnership was key, as you've just pointed out. Um, otherwise, President Karzai was getting to pick, as sometimes happens in every country, getting to pick the ones he wanted to go. And so the women realized that they were gonna be left out completely. In, in deciding themselves. And that same issue is everywhere. How do you build those partnerships? I had to do it in the coalition. We were a coalition of women from every side, uh, rural, urban, different classes, different religions, different political identity. And that isn't easy. Um, but Afghanistan is so much bigger. Um, and, you know, I'm seeing the same issue in Colombia in terms of trying to get people to unite around these particular issues. But if you don't have ownership, the night before the peace agreement finished, um, at three o'clock on the morning of Good Friday, we took the agreement and said, does this speak to women? And we've been here for two years. And if we can't start getting some clauses into this, like the right of women to fill in political, politi political participation, the right of women to be in, included in um, public decision-making roles, and then all the other pieces that we put in um, that we felt on community development on young people resources for young because you have talked about this issue of radicalization and we were concerned that if we didn't put it 
the funding and resources, because if it's not in the agreement, it won't get resourced. Um, but that was a question that really uh, we, we sat up that night and we were lucky uh, that we got it in. And I'll tell you the reasons why we got it in was because the um, negotiators were so tired, they simply said, let the women have that. And that's how we got it in. Um, it wasn't women, peace and security. Well, women, peace and security wasn't, but there wasn't that mm -hmm. sense. The inclusion was just wary of us being at that issue. But we were more concerned about what people would say about us and the partnerships we had built if we didn't manage to get, when I knocked the doors on the referendum to get people to say yes to the agreement, would they turn on me and say, fat lot of yes, you were. And so those are the questions that you constantly ask yourselves. Um, and I'm asking myself about what I can do in relation to Afghanistan. Um, I am working with humanitarian groups who are still there and absolutely making sure we don't pull out um, and because we're more needed now than we ever were. And that's, that's, that's my voluntary work that I do and I'll be going there. Um, but what I can do about the Taliban and what those negotiations led to and, you know, the, the announcements just the other day, as you now know, where women have to be veiled from head to toe. Those are backward steps that we in the international community have overseen to our shame. Mr. Christine, anything to add? I mean, specifically on that, we do have an online question. How do we um, take the WPS agenda into account in humanitarian work? given reluctance in the humanitarian arena to consider WPS, which sort of builds on what you were just talking about, Monica. Is that anything? Any thoughts? No? Well, just never, ever let the humanitarian agenda go. I mean, I am working on, and have stepped down from Interpeace, but others work with Trucker and Concern and currently working with Concern, um, is the amount of work that they are doing on development issues, but trying to connect the dots between development and women, peace and security, between food security, which we're now facing yeah. because of climate change, as well as the war in Ukraine, connect the dots between that uh, and the word peace. Um, and that's why a lot of those big agencies, like the World Health Organization, like the uh, distribution of food and aid, um, the refugee agencies all need to be they're all in silos in the past, and I can understand that, being in plenty of silos myself, um, but see the need for partnership. Mm. That term that you constantly, constantly focus on. Um, and that, that's where I do think sometimes the humanitarian organizations are better at it because they have to be. Yeah, but the point, like, you know, they failed Afghanistan, the humanitarian organizations, because, you know, when this, the, the Taliban had not yet taken over, and I'm talking of July 2021, they had a meeting with, uh, on the Pakistan side, the, all the humanitarian organizations, the UN entities and all, they invited the organizations who are already working in that area to develop a sort of a, a blueprint for this, this can happen. It was, they were just foreseeing something is going to happen and there will be influx of refugees into Pakistan. But when it happened in August, 2021, there was no response coming from those same humanitarian organizations. So I always say that like, you know, WPS agenda is on the one side, but the economics of WPS 
has never mm -hmm. been taken into consideration. We really need to be talking about the, the economics of WPS now, because this is what we really need to, uh, we, we, we badly need it. And since we lack like, you know, the support, the resources, uh, we spend a lot of money on uh, arming ourselves to the brim and on the, uh, the militarization. And they feel that, you know, taking more women into the military cadre means that like, you know, yes, we have served the purpose of bringing in more women into security frameworks. But like, you know, we really need to be talking to them that we, we need more money for gender equality. We need more money for all the, the people who are suffering because of your drones, people who are suffering because of your, like, you know, use of the weapons against the innocent people because they have not hit anybody who is a criminal. They have not hit anybody who, is a, who has been actually killing others. They have hit the people who are being killed already and they are the innocent people. So I think the economy of WPS, we really need to be focusing more on this and the, there should be no resolution, but we should be developing a framework for that. We are approaching the hour and there are a couple more questions in the room that I'd just like to give people a chance to pose. Um, so Neelan and then Brad. It's been absolutely enlightening to hear about the Ireland's role in this. Thank you so much for really get that in my head. My question is that there is, we understand that the humanitarian, especially the Afghanistan crisis, when SCR said we will not help, none of us will help you. We know that, don't worry. Put that to one side, that's humanitarian failure across the board. Priti Patel announced a new program for the Afghan women when SCR said nothing to us. Let's put that to one side. WPS with the resources that Musara has been talking about, WPS with the with all the UNS Security Council resolution of all kinds, plus the money required to implement them. What would your top three suggestions be to push against the missing piece, the third piece of a lack of will yeah. in nation states, including at a high level internationally? including within humanitarian agencies nationally and locally and internationally. How do we work that lack of will that shows up as virtue signaling when you kind of go down to the ground and try to do what the money is for and what the security council resolution is for? What would be your top three suggestions to address the lack of will? Thank you. And we'll take Brad's question with as well. Industry and with so, your own industry. I want to explore this suggestion that context is everything, while at the same time we're looking at these international legal frameworks, because um, understandably critical realists identify how power is built into the system, right? And while we might distance ourselves from that, arguably, as we've just heard, there are legitimate criticisms of the WPS, also with respect to Afghanistan here. And when I'm hearing, and I'm a political scientist, a comparative political scientist, when I'm hearing comparisons between Colombia and Afghanistan and other countries, or parts of the United Kingdom, here, the North Ireland, I'm actually thinking, no. I'm thinking that the level of oppression that Afghan women have experienced, which has prevented them from going to school, denies them the basis of the 
social and cultural and political rights, which is what you're advocating for. And it just seems to me that we have to be honest about this in terms of how we work towards these, these goals that we share and we believe in, and the fact that actually we are starting at very different places and that if we are going to talk about structural factors and structural limitations, then we need to recognize that at the, the level of context, you know, as part of our advocacy as well. And I'm sorry that was missing with respect to Afghanistan. As we heard with respect to humanitarian organizations, which turned their back, but not all of them. So the World Food Program was actually in Afghanistan throughout. These differences are important to recognize. That's my comment. Thank you. So I'm going to ask our panelists to respond as they see fit to those two questions, comments, observations. And if there is any last thought you want to leave us with about the WPS agenda this evening, uh, please take the opportunity to do so. Who would like to? Thanks. That's right. Now, in response to what Anina asked, she yes. asked for me. Yeah. Okay. That's a very difficult, actually, question to respond to. Because I think we already are experiencing uh, discriminatory politics. So unless and until this discrimination is not addressed, we still will have that north-south divide. We still will have the conflicts in our own countries and in our own region to, to deal with, although they are created by someone else. So I think uh, unless and until this discrimination, whether it's in the political uh, context or in the economic context is not addressed, uh, we have no solution. Uh, I think that's what I can respond to, to you, Neelam, because unless and until this discrimination is not addressed. We still be fighting for everything, for our rights, for our space, for for our. I think like you know, but at least for some opportunities, whether it's economic or other political opportunities, because it is so obvious when you look at these structures, the international structures. I'm sorry, like, you know, you, you will say that, I think I'm like, you know, putting up all these discriminatory uh, things like, you know, in front of you. But when you look at the structure and you were discussing it the, um, the other day um, in, in the Commonwealth, I said, how many uh, in the Commonwealth Secretariat and in the home Commonwealth, like in the high, highest hierarchy uh, are from, from the, that region, which is not ABC. Australia, Canada, Britain, yeah. I hope you understand. So if in the structure there is discrimination, that definitely cascades to the policy, to the implementation, and to, of course, the, uh, to everything, to the treatment that, we, that is being muttered out to us. So I think that's, that, that would, I hope, address your, I mean, I'm trying to address your question, you know, Thank you. Uh, 
I'm completely at a loss to say three, <laughs> three things, Neelam, I'm sorry. But to build on, or to continue a bit what Masarat's just said, we, I, we've lost, haven't we, the very concept of humanity and the importance of human rights for everybody, including, most importantly, economic and social rights. And while that mindset has just lost all of that, so I think it's it's not just discrimination, it's the, well, the discrim discrimination is at the basis of all denial of human rights. But then when the rights not even recognized as being appertaining to all humanity and how we are hierarchy, hierarchizing victims and human, we're, we're creating these hierarchies, who's important? And while some people are deemed dispensable, then, then we are losing that away. And it's having to get back to seeing the humanity and the inherent inalienable rights of all people. But then how we move to getting that political will and breaking the power structures that refuse to accept the need to get rid of those hierarchies. That's where I get completely stuck. But as a sort of whimsical thought, supposing in 1945, they had created a peace council instead of a security council. <laughs> Would that have made a difference? That's a, that's a, it's a colleague's comment, actually, not my own. But it's the fire would remain with the decision maker. At least the language might have been turned around, and language can be important. Thank you. Um, mm, I agree that human rights for all. In fact, again, plug my book. It's a chapter in my book. It's titled Human Rights for All. Oh, is it? Yeah. And I tried to explain the little job I had as trying to make that embed that in the culture and how difficult it is to embed that in a country like Afghanistan or Northern Ireland. Because a low context is everything. You have those who absolutely do not understand international human rights standards. So we turned it around here now and talk about justice and particularly social and economic justice. Because when we did those kind of citizens assemblies, which actually I should have said to you when you asked about transformative moments, they have actually created in Ireland transformative moments, which shows that where you don't have the political will because the politicians are too nervous to make changes on reproductive rights and on same sex issues. The citizens assemblies were able to do it for them and then go to a referendum and the people voted. And those were transformative moments. So I say that um, you broaden the agenda and you bring in civil society. Um, and it goes back to however, politicians as they constantly ask here um, and who do you think you are to be representative and that's where the social movements come in uh, because they put that pressure on um, so you can certainly ask that question about the lack of political will we know what that means here um, and so the answer that I'm trying to give is that there's a twin track approach to this that you can't just come at this from law and order or even with militarization. You know, it has to go back to the structural causes and that's back to the issue of social and economic justice. And the reason why your institute is called, or the one that I'm emeritus professor in, is called transitional justice. And trying to focus on those mechanisms that really do lead to a transition. Uh, so 
Um, I, I really do continue to emphasize that. And the last point I'd make is that let's never forget that it's really important that whatever women peace and security has done, it has increased the notion of framing things through a gender lens. Mm. And it has put that on the table. Um, and I think that gender framing is really, really important. And as we're about to go into a legacy process here, it is places like the Institute and Catherine O'Rourke's work and others that has raised the importance of asking and what happened to the women. Uh, otherwise it'd be completely forgotten uh, as we move to deal with the legacy. Um, and gender budgets, which we haven't talked that much about, but you have. Um, I know from my work, and I'll finish on this point, that I have been on a couple of commissions now, one to look at the prisons here in Northern Ireland, which we didn't look at in the agreement to our shame and should have, um, and to make the reforms that are needed. Um, and it was really important that after the, the group that uh, promoted the reforms, another group came in to oversee their implementation. And I now know that this work I'm doing to oversee other kinds of measures, you need to have monitors. And that's why I would ask who is monitoring and who is doing this work in relation to saying what was promised has to be delivered. Um, and we will continue to do it. <coughs> Peace building is an unfinished business that never stops. Um, and including women in that is part of that business. And I leave it there. I'm running out of energy, mind you, as I get older. And I want to pass that baton on. And I think it's great that there's so many young ones here. And it's one good message from Northern Ireland is that we had a very cynical population here in terms of our, our politics. And I think we've now encouraged many young women to come in and then build on that for, I hope, for the next generation. Um, because we're all getting older. And the question is, can we pass this baton now? Yeah. And that has to be, if anything, that has to be the legacy of women, peace and security. Um, it's been a great pleasure uh, for me, and I think also for all of you, to have the opportunity to listen to our panelists this evening. Very sobering, worrying, challenging, uh, but also I think very inspiring uh, words from all of them. Uh, that certainly will resonate with many of us. So thank you again, Monica, Mozart, and Christine for joining us. Thank you to people on Zoom for attending virtually. Thank you to people in the audience for attending in person. Those of you who are here in person, we do have a small reception, so please do stay around afterwards. I look forward very much to welcoming you to another event. Uh, on Zoom or in person or both at Ulster University. And can I just ask that we show our appreciation for our speakers in the customary manner.